Christchurch, New Malden, 27th of October 2019, 6.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Understanding the Covenant in the New Creation. Okay, well, being absolutely clear how something ends makes all the difference to how we understand it. And to illustrate this for a few moments, I want you to think about your favourite story. Now, it might be a book, it might be a film. So I want you just to sort of think, right, you know, if I'm put on the spot, what is my favourite story? It can be a book or it can be a film. It might be something you've liked since you were a child. It might be something that only came out recently. Um, but have that in mind. Okay. Now, I asked this same question to members of the Christchurch team this week. I asked them to nominate their favourite stories. And uh, some of them got back to me. Okay. And here are the answers that they came up with. Okay. So five members of the Christchurch team. Sally Butler, you overlap with one of them, do you? It's okay. You can't have exclusive rights to these books. Okay. Other people will like them as well, Sally. Mild rebuke there. Okay, but anyway, I got answers, and you've got to guess. If you know these people, you've got to guess which one was which. So I don't need answers to come up quite yet. But basically, up there, you've got five uh, stories. One of them's a film, the other four are books. And the people who chose them were Tim Davis, Anna Larkin, uh, David um, Taylor, Katie Loffman, and Becky Mills. So just be making up your mind, if you know those people, which you think fits with which. I want to see who gets five out of five. Okay, right? Are you, okay, you worked that in your mind? Okay, most of you will know most of those people. Okay, here come the answers. There they are. Okay, so yeah, it was David Taylor with Jane Eyre. A lot of us know that already. David's actually preached on Jane Eyre. Uh, Becky Mills with The Selfish Giant by Oscar Wilde. Uh, Tim Davis with some book I hadn't heard of. Yeah? 100 Years of Solitude, whether Tim's actually read it or he just wanted to look impressive, I don't know. Uh, Anna Larkin, Pride and Prejudice, and Katie Loffman, Pulp Fiction. So ask Katie Loffman, I've only seen about five minutes of that, and I was so horrified I couldn't watch anymore. So I was slightly shocked. So I wonder what your choices will be. Who got five out of five on guessing the people, by the way? Anyone at all? Yeah, perhaps I didn't give you long enough. Of course, the very best choice is this one, okay? Uh, really, you know, you can't beat Robin Hood, particularly the 1938 definitive version. So quite a lot of uh, diversity there. But, you know, what unites all good stories is that they have a satisfying ending. I don't think it's possible for there to be a great story which doesn't have a satisfying ending. An ending where all of the various tensions in that story are resolved, where all the various strands of it come to resolution. When we read or watch a story for the first time, it's a little bit different. We don't usually know the ending. And that does mean that there's a certain amount of excitement as we engage with that story. But very often it's once we've watched a story or read it, and once we know its overall shape, its beginning, its middle, and crucially, I'm suggesting its end, that we find ourselves better able to appreciate and understand that story. We can then look back and see the significance of all its twists and turns. We can look back and think, aha, that bit was really crucial to the whole story, in a way that we don't necessarily when we're reading it for the first time. And all of that is very, very definitely true of the story of the covenant. 
We've been looking at this 6.30 service for a couple of months, and we're finishing this this evening, at this great long story within the Bible. And we've seen God establishing his covenant within creation and then developing it in his promises to Noah, to Abraham, to Israel via Moses, to David, and then through the prophets. And we've also seen how the people of Israel waited for these covenant promises to be fulfilled. And each of the different groups within uh, Israel, each of the different major sections, they had rather different ideas about how this fulfillment would look when it happened. And in the last couple of weeks, we've seen how these promises were fulfilled, according to the New Testament, in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And then we've seen how that also happens through the Spirit, working through the United Church. But now this evening we come to the final chapter. This evening we come to what the Bible says about how the whole of this great story is going to end. And this is where we have to, I think, be frank with ourselves this evening and admit that for most Christians, this is where the whole story has quite often fallen apart because we've messed up the ending. So imagine what some of those favourite stories from earlier would be like if we tampered with the ending, if we allowed the ending to be changed by someone else or changed it ourselves. Imagine if, instead of going back and marrying Mr Rochester, we made Jane Eyre marry that vicar that rather liked her instead. Would pull the whole story out of shape, wouldn't it? Or imagine if, instead of marrying Mr Darcy, Elizabeth Bennet... Uh, had ended up marrying the villainous Mr. Wickham instead in Pride and Prejudice. Or imagine shock horror, and I can hardly believe I'm suggesting this, instead of welcoming good King Richard's return, we made Robin Hood kill him instead and join with Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham. Tamper with the ending and we unravel the whole story, don't we? And we fundamentally change its nature. And yet, what I'm suggesting this evening is that that's what Christians have done more or less with the story of the covenant. We haven't created an ending that's the complete opposite of the biblical story, like the ones that I've just, the examples I've just given. But very often we have changed it enough to have pretty much the same effect. We've tended throughout Christian history to change the end of the story enough to have the effect of rather distorting the entire story. And the way we've done this is by giving the covenant story an ending that's essentially escapist. According to this understanding, God makes the creation, uh, covenant in creation. He clarifies it through Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and the prophets. He brings it to fulfillment in Jesus and the Spirit. All okay so far, until the final chapter where it's all heading becomes this. Followers of Jesus, the covenant people of God, going to heaven when we die. If we believe in Jesus and trust that he died for us, then we're rescued by him and we get this golden ticket to heaven. The trouble is that this ending, and I emphasize ending, isn't the Bible's. It really isn't. It's not wrong in affirming that when we die, we go to be with Jesus in heaven. That's what the Bible does say. But it is wrong in making it the final chapter. It is wrong 
in making it the ending of the covenant story. And the consequences of this are actually rather serious because when we change the ending of a story, we mess up, as I've been trying to emphasize, the whole of that story. And we end up in this case with a Christianity that becomes purely about individual escape from the world rather than having anything to do with God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Let's have those words up there. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. wonder how many times in our lives we've uh, said those words. It would be quite good to have a computer that could give us those sort of... Imagine if you could Google, how many times in my life have I said, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven? It would be very interesting to have the answer to that. Maybe one day we'll know. But it's probably quite a lot, isn't it? Because a lot of us have said the Lord's Prayer a lot in our lives, maybe at school, and hopefully a lot since. And what I want to suggest this evening is that unless we understand that line and take it seriously, and unless we allow that line to help us form a biblical understanding of how the whole covenant story will end up, we've pretty much been wasting our time in trying to understand the covenant over the last two months. Now that is quite a big claim, isn't it? And I'm aware uh, that I'm being quite challenging in saying this. So I'd better back it up. And I want to back it up this evening by using those three passages that were read to us by Alex a few moments ago. I'll be referring to one or two others as well. But all of those passages that Alex read out just a few moments ago are about how the covenant story is going to end up. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 8, they're all written by St. Paul. And the crucial ending of the covenant story that they all point to is this. This is my summary. God's victory over sin and evil made complete through the resurrection of his people to a new creation. That, according to the New Testament, is how the covenant story is going to end up. So let's look at those passages for a few uh, moments. First one, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. There it is, or part of it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about the return of Jesus, which will begin the end of the covenant story. Now this is the particular passage that is sometimes used to speak of a rapture, whereby Jesus will return and those who belong to him will be swept up to heaven with everyone else left behind. That's where those left behind books get their title from. And taken literally, if we look at that passage, it can seem to suggest this. But what we're actually seeing here is a great deal of powerful metaphor. The metaphor that's used in this passage is partly drawn from the language of the imperial world of the Roman Empire, but most of it is drawn from the story of the covenant. So the return of Jesus, this passage says, will be rather like the coming of a great emperor to a city, where when an emperor arrived, the citizens didn't just wait uh, for that emperor to come in, they actually came out to greet him. They came out and lined the streets and they came out of that city to escort him back into it. But the reference to the angel and the trumpet show that this would also fulfill the covenant that God had made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And the reference to Jesus meeting with those who belong to him in the clouds shows again, using metaphor, 
that this event would fulfill Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 of the Son of Man coming to receive from God dominion over the earth. And what this passage is saying is that Jesus' followers will all be caught up within this, both those who are still alive and those who have died, because all of us will receive a resurrection that is similar to that of Jesus. So that's 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, uh, towards the end of that chapter. And if we go on to the next passage, 1 Corinthians 15, we see more detail about this. Now, when uh, Katie and uh, my twins were born back in 1997, Rebecca and James, one of the members of the church uh, that we then went to in Croydon, sent us a card which quoted from this passage. Do you want to see the card? Here it is. The patron verse of babyhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Except there should have been two crawling toddlers on that page. Those words, let's have the passage uh, come up again, come from 1 Corinthians 15. And in this passage, we again see the symbol of the trumpet that comes from when the covenant is established through Moses to Israel in Exodus chapter 19. And we also see a great deal about the resurrection of those who belong to Jesus and how the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. When I was at Theological College, uh, this was actually the passage that they got us to, uh, to read out when we had to practice projection of voices uh, and so on. And the woman who chose this passage, Alex did very well with it, uh, chose it because she said anyone who gets given this passage and doesn't prepare it falls flat on their face because they talk about the perishable being closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality and all that sort of thing. But Alex read it fine, didn't he? And earlier in this passage, we're given more detail about what this means. Let's look at part early in the passage. It talks about the fact that Jesus will return and all those who belong to him will be raised from death, again given a resurrection, to join them with those who are still alive at that point. And it then says, and this is crucial, that Jesus will then reign until all God's enemies have been defeated and the last of those enemies is death. In Revelation chapter 20, it talks about this uh, reign of Jesus lasting for a thousand years, a millennium. And that again is symbolic. I don't believe we're meant to take that literally. I think it's symbolic. It's symbolizing the way in which the reign of Jesus, when he puts everything right, will dwarf those much briefer periods when evil has appeared to be in charge. So the writer of Revelation talks about evil being in charge for three and a half years and then talks about the thousand-year reign of Christ. And it's powerful symbolism saying that Jesus, on his return, is going to put everything right. He's going to reign until everything has been put right. And then it says the Son himself will hand over that authority so that God may be all in all. There's nothing here about going to heaven when we die, is there? It's actually the precise opposite. It's about Jesus coming to earth so that God's authority will be able to be fully established here with us, you and me, fully part of this. So what we're seeing here is a hugely strong commitment to the earth, to its uh, restoration and renewal, yes, of course, 
but to its future as well. And we see God's commitment to the earth further affirmed in the third passage, Romans chapter 8, where Paul speaks about the resurrection of God's people bringing the liberation of the whole of God's creation. The creation, St. Paul says, waits in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. The sons of God to be revealed seems to refer to uh, those who belong to God, God's people being fully revealed in their resurrection state. For the creation, he says, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And it's a really wonderful vision, isn't it? It's a vision that affirms that God's covenant purpose, the end, the finish of the whole great story, will be nothing less than both God's people and God's creation being liberated. Liberated from death and decay together. Now another passage that uh, we could have looked at was Revelation 21 which speaks of the renewal of creation through the coming of a new heaven and a new earth, perfectly integrated together, unlike at the moment, so that the dwelling of God is with humans within a creation where, to quote Revelation 21, there'll be no more death, no more crying or mourning or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So here... I suggest is the true ending that we really do need to engage with if we're going to understand all those earlier bits of the covenant story. Here again is my summary. God's victory over sin and evil made complete through the resurrection of God's people to a new creation. And that I do believe very strongly is the ending that we need to be clear upon if we're going to understand all those earlier bits of the covenant story. If we make the ending different, as Christians very often have done, if we make it instead the escapist ending of going to heaven when we die, if we take that from being a sort of quite important but pastoral um, thing involving our personal future after we die, if we take that and make that the final chapter, the big ending of the biblical story, if we take out that sort of penultimate chapter and insist on making it the final one, then all those earlier bits of the story struggle to make sense. And that's why, rather than reading stories like Noah, Abraham, Moses, David and the prophets theologically, that's why we very often struggle to make sense of those stories and in the end settle for making them moralistic stories containing good or bad examples for our spiritual lives. And they're quite difficult to interpret that way and it's rather unsatisfying. And when you get people who think, oh, I do struggle with the Old Testament, how to make sense of it, quite often it's because they're insisting on squeezing it into an overall story which is rather different from the biblical one. So it helps us to clarify the earlier parts of the story. It helps us to understand in far more depth why the earlier parts of the story are as they are. But there's an even more important reason why we need to get the ending of the covenant story right. 
The most important reason is this. Getting the ending right of the covenant story, being really clear about the technical word is eschatology, how God's going to make it all end up. The reason why that is so important is because it clarifies for us as Christians, like nothing else, what our agenda needs to be in the meantime. If we make the end of the biblical story, the end of the covenant story, going to heaven when we die, if we insist that that is the ending, or we just uncritically accept that as the ending, then our role, usually in the meantime, becomes that of simply rescuing souls for heaven. If we've got a bit of energy rescuing souls for heaven, if we haven't, just waiting for it to happen. Very little emphasis, very little importance attached to the importance of justice within this world. Very little importance attached to care for the environment. Very little importance attached to being a radical kingdom community serving God in the here and now. That's the consequence of us tampering with the ending or allowing it to be tampered with. Christians very often have been able to do those things, but sometimes in spite of their theology rather than because of it. When I was growing up as a teenager, I knew all those things were important. I was quite late, I think, waking up uh, to care for the environment. But I knew that things like justice were important. But if I was asked to say why, I wouldn't really have been able to give a convincing theological answer, certainly at nothing uh, that I think would satisfy me now. And this is really important. And there is one particular part of the covenant story, the ending of it, that I haven't uh, especially dwelt on yet, but I want to come to now. Because it really crystallises for us our role in the present. And it's that aspect of our future which talks about us being priests and rulers within God's new creation. Now this can come as quite a surprise to people, and it's partly because of our neglect of the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. Revelation can seem rather confusing, it can seem rather off-putting, so very often we decanonize it. We have 65 books in the Bible and Revelation sort of drops off the end. Now that is serious for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons why it's most serious is because Revelation comes at the end of uh, the Bible for a reason. It's because it clarifies to a very strong degree how things are going to end up. And one of the things that Revelation strongly emphasises is our future role as priests and rulers within God's new creation. So here are the references uh, within Revelation. There's quite a number of them. What does it mean when we're called to be priests and rulers? Well, we're called to reflect creation's praise back to God. That is the priestly role. And we're called to reflect God's rule over the earth. So being priests and rulers means representing God to creation. It means representing creation back to God. And these uh, verses, which very often aren't particularly read or aren't particularly uh, pondered upon, are really important. But the emphasis isn't just within Revelation. We might think, well, Revelation's a bit of an odd book. We ought to uh, be able to substantiate this from elsewhere. We'll look at these emphases in Paul's writings. How much more will they reign in life? Paul is talking about us there through the one man, Jesus the Messiah. 
When he's talking to the Corinthians about them going to trials and suing one another, he says, don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? And then in his letter to Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying, if we endure, we will reign with him. And there's a reference as well from Jesus uh, in uh, St. Matthew's Gospel, talking about the future reign of those who belong to him. What's the basis of all of this? Well, back in the covenant story, in the stuff that we did quite a while ago with David, Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests, weren't they? In Exodus chapter 19, Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests. And that reflects the original calling made to human beings back in creation in the early chapters of Genesis. Human beings were placed uh, within God's creation to rule that kingdom, that uh, creation, on God's behalf. That's what it means to be created in the image of God, to reflect God's rule over creation, and to reflect creation's praises back to God. Now, as we follow through the covenant story, humanity generally, and Israel specifically, fails very badly in that calling, doesn't it? As did most of Israel's kings when that particular task was concentrated upon them. But when Jesus fulfilled that covenant calling, when Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, he also enabled all those within him, all those belonging to him, to fulfill it as well. Meaning that those of us who belong to Jesus still possess that calling in the new creation. And because we live after Easter, after Ascension, and after Pentecost, God's creation is therefore already present on earth through the Holy Spirit. And our task as followers of Jesus, those who live within the covenant story, is to anticipate that future that has been revealed to us, that future vision of us being priests and rulers in God's new creation, our task in the present is to anticipate that future role by the way that we live in the present. And here are some of the biblical passages that affirm this calling for the people of God in the present. 1 Peter uses covenantal language to describe you and me, followers of Jesus, as this, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's the calling to God's covenant people in the present. And it makes sense in, uh, in the context of that whole covenant story, doesn't it? The language there is quite clearly drawn uh, from the Old Testament and from God's uh, calling to the people of Israel, which is now fulfilled through the coming of Jesus and within the church. A few verses earlier, Peter speaks of God's people being this, living stones, being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that is our calling, if we want to live within the covenant story. Earlier on in this talk, I started with those favourite stories that we and others have. And when we really love a story, whether it is a classic novel or whether it's a film like Shawshank Redemption or 
the sound of music or something like that. When we really love a story, it becomes part of us, doesn't it? It, to some degree, shapes the people we are because that story lodges within us and it shapes our understanding of the world that we live in. It shapes uh, the way that we live. Now, if that's true to some of the stories that we enjoy, then it's even more true of the great covenant story that we've followed after, over the last couple of months. God calls human beings to be part of his great plan of bringing his kingdom rule on earth as it is in heaven. That great plan was marked by both terrible failure on the part of human beings and a wonderful faithfulness from God. And that story therefore takes many twists and turns, doesn't it? The faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of the people God has called means that the story has amazing twists and turns as it makes its way towards its fulfilment. And then it finds its amazingly surprising fulfilment, but its definitive fulfilment, in Jesus Christ. And our role, ahead of the final ending of that story, is to so anticipate that role of being priests and rulers that will be given in the new creation, that we live resurrection lives in the present. Our resurrection is in the future, when we'll be liberated from pain and frustration and limitation and all those things that uh, we are called in the present to suffer with. But the way we anticipate that future in the new creation is by living resurrection lives nonetheless in the present, anticipating that future rule that we will have over the earth. So how should we do that? Should we go around bossing people around, saying, one day I'll rule this earth, so do as you're told now? That would be fun, wouldn't it, for a little while? But no, actually it's very different from that. The way we anticipate the future, when we'll be priests and rulers in God's new creation, the way we anticipate that future in the present is through cultivating the three great virtues that Paul says will last into the new creation. And we find them in that famous passage uh, that's often read at weddings. It was read from this platform just the other day when Alex Trigg uh, got married here to Babatunde. And it's that passage from 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the three things that will last into God's new creation being faith, hope, and love. And that's our calling in the present. And that's clarified by the future that God's promised. That's clarified by the fact that resurrection to a new creation will be that future. And therefore, all of the ways in which we contribute to the coming of God's kingdom that anticipate that future, every single time we are part of greater justice coming to this world, every time we're part of greater truth coming to a situation where there's lies, Every time we do things that are built on faith, hope, and love, we're promised that those things aren't transitory, they're not going to pass away. We're promised that those things are going to last into the new creation. So the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, this great chapter where Paul talks about uh, the future, what's going to happen in the, in the last days, Paul ends that chapter not by saying, and so wow, what a, 
What a lovely future you've got to look forward to. Paul says, therefore, give yourselves fully to service to God, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And what Paul's saying in that passage is that we can throw ourselves into God's kingdom work because not a single part of that is going to be wasted because God is going to fully establish his kingdom one day on earth as it is in heaven. So being really clear about the ending of the story brings a wonderful clarity about our role in the present. Building a community bound together by and reflecting God's love. A community working to bring more of God's justice into the world, caring for the environment and stewarding its resources carefully and wisely. And all of these things become part of the way in which we inhabit this great covenant story that we've been looking at over the last couple of months and which will reach its, reach its climax in the coming of God's new creation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the great story of your covenant revealed through the pages of the Bible. And we pray, Lord God, that we wouldn't go away from these two months with this becoming dimmer in our minds, but we pray that it would go clearer and clearer. We pray that you would help us to live as you've called us to, within the covenant story and we thank you for the enormous privilege of you calling us to be part of your work to be priests and rulers in your new creation and would you help us to anticipate that future by living lives characterized by faith hope and love we commit ourselves to that and as later on we celebrate your covenant story as we gather around uh, your table, we pray that that will be part of burning this story into our hearts so that we live it out in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.